Hi, my name's Matt Piper, and welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You're going to get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Yeah, I I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking. Today we've got Matt Piper on the show. Yeah, um, I'm Matt Piper, uh, former Leicester City, Sunderland and Mansfield Town player. I I had to quit early through injury um, with lots of knee injuries, ankle injuries, hernias, you name it, I've probably had it. Um, so I quit at 25 years old and since then I've set up my own academy and I'm I'm now a, a football coach. I'm quite open and honest when it comes to the struggles that I've had um, while, whilst I was in football and especially afterwards. Um, and I still think it it's getting better, but it does still have a large stigma around it and, and lots of people um, don't talk about it enough, don't share about it enough. Um, and it's quite a, I suppose it's quite an awkward thing to talk about and to listen to at times but I, I just try and be really open and honest about the struggles that I went through to you know to try and chip away at them stigmas that I think still hang around. So as usual I'm joined by Danny Reed and Ryan Pulford, two sexy sexy fellas. Lads, how are we this week? Yeah, good. I yeah, I'm good mate, how are you? Yeah I'm good, I'm good. Ryan, how are <clears> we? <throat> yeah no I'm well. I'm very well. I'm very, very well I played footy this morning. Um I'm a bit tired. Oh, the old legs, but in the spirit and in the mind. Did you do any track and back? I was at centre half oh, for a bit, and then we and then we would and then it was going fine for a bit, and then we started losing. So I went up front and said, "Someone go at centre half for me." No, okay. And you just I was sick of it. Any overhead kicks this week? I one one overhead kick, but I didn't properly commit to it because I'm like old now. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Right, so we got Matt Piper on the show this week. Uh, Matt Piper scored the last goal at Filbert Street. You did? So our opening question was kind of based around that. I, I want to know your favourite ground that no longer exists. So, Ryan, I'll start with you first. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to steal Danny's here. This is a ground I wish I got to and I've never been, uh, which is Main Road. Oh, nice. nice um, yeah. My boss and work's a massive City fan. Uh, I've seen old footage. I know Trammy played there a few times, a few lads who went. And it was just one of them old school moody grounds, but it was quite big as well, wasn't it? You yeah, forget it. It, it, it was like. a thirty something thousand, thirty five odd thousand. Sort of similar size to Goodison, I think. Isn't yeah. It? So and it just looked like it was in the heart of the community, and they weren't the best side then. And it's probably a shame that it didn't get to experience, apart from maybe earlier on in the decades. I don't know when, they, when were they last good city seventies? Maybe were they any good then? <laughs> they had Dennis Law for a bit. Didn't <laughs> yeah, they? I don't, don't know. You look. You're looking at me like I wasn't born in nineteen ninety two. I know, but you do them. Flat caps episodes, I thought you'd know. Yeah, but not about uh, Main Road. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just looked like a brilliant traditional traditional ground. Yeah, so interestingly about Main Road. Um, See? When they went... Stuff. Yeah. Why didn't you ask him? So I, didn't know I you did as at... well, and then he looked blank, so I turned to you. Oh. So I've only just thought of it. So when they went down to the... What, it would have been Division 2. Um, they couldn't train in front... Like, warm up for the game oh, in yeah. front of the crowd because there was 30,000 people there. 
and Joe Royal went, you're all like nervous and shocked mm. by like there being this many people there. Mm. So he used to get them to go and train up, train and warm up in a in a gym, uh, further down the road. But then he'd have to like get to the gar- get to the game. Oh. So it would be like running in. I think Paul Dickoff said they used to have to run in, like all kitted up, boots and everything, like running through fans to get into the ground. So I think they literally got there like that seems twenty minutes, twenty minutes before. But you say that, well, they falling over and that they, they were losing to like I'm sure they were losing to like teams like York City and stuff in that in the early. Nothing wrong with York. Yeah, well, they were, it was that season when they went <clears> up in the playoffs. They were losing to like York City, and when he started doing that, they went, they got to the playoffs and went up. Which was, I think it's probably one but of the best But surely the fans could have mm. just give them abuse as they were running through the back from the gym. <laughs> I, I think probably more <laughs> I don't, personal I don't, than it ever I, would have been. I, I don't think it was so much that they were giving them abuse. I think it was more that they were in the second division, so they had players that were second division players, but they were very much playing at like a, a first division club and they were a little bit overburdened by the, the kind of weight of expectations. As a modern thinker, um, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Joe Royal surely should have been saying to him, listen, you're going to be playing in front of these, so get out there, get used to it. Not go down your local bloody Total Fitness or something and then run in the ground. I feel like your protestations to his sort of methods would be more effective if he hadn't literally got them promoted. Yeah, I would have got them promoted. Yeah, okay. So (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll leave Joe Royal's tactics there. Uh, Danny, your favourite ground that no longer exists? Um, Well, the first one that came to mind is a bit of an obvious one, which was the old Wembley. Oh, okay, yeah. But I didn't know if I could go for that because there is a new Wembley. But um, that's exactly the point of the question. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, and <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to go for the old Wembley. Uh, I'm going to go for Saltergate. Saltergate. Oh Saltergate, yeah, yeah. Which Ugh. I think came up when we spoke to Nicky Truman. Yeah, we it, spoke it, about yeah. Saltergate, um, which is Chesterfield's old ground. For those who don't know, the reason I went for Saltergate was twofold. The first one was because we've had a couple of a few nice memories there as Tramia mm-hmm. fans. I went one season and sat in like the side stand in like some wooden benches in the top corner, and Eugene Daddy scored an absolutely unbelievable volley. And then not long after that, we also played them in the FA Cup. Might have even been the first round. It was certainly early on. Second. And was it second? It was that season that Tramia were doing free coach travel to FA Cup games, and we must have been about. 80. Three, I think it was 3,000. Yeah, there was loads down there. We packed out that away end. And we did we win 1-0 or 2-1? It was quite narrow. Danny Coyne saved the penalty. Last minute as well. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. It was an excellent day. So, And it was that is like a proper old school minging football ground. Oh, the toilets. I the swear, toilets they, like got, open yeah, they didn't have a roof. and the wall the, where you... The, and, yeah. and the stand next to you could see into you <laughs> having a wee. York's a bit like that. He pop hates York. Yeah, no, pop I does hate York. <laughs> he hates York more than Teddy Sheringham. <laughs> oh, that's good, that, that well, Thank you very yeah, much. Like Do you want to give us yours, Ant? Uh, Chomping at the bit. I only ever, I only ever visit modern stadiums. I'm too good for for those. Pathetic. Dumps. No, the one I, I, I was kind of fascinated by it was um, you know the Vetch Swansea old ground. Oh yes, that looked rough. Yeah, Ninian, you never went Ninian Park as well. Yeah, oh yeah, Ninian Park. See, they're yeah, like two. Same with Main Road that you look back on and you go, it's like see, the other thing with Chesterfield, which is why I picked it was, was that, and this is not a dig at Chesterfield at all, because it's the same as like Shrewsbury. I think we've all been to Shrewsbury. Mm. They're like the newer grounds and they're fine. The facilities are good and I'm sure it's a lot better for the club themselves, but they're just soulless. They're mm. just technique hit grounds that just look like everybody else's. These like, they look like the type of thing. Do you remember on like really old games of footy manager or championship manager? 
and it'd just be the generic square stadium that the teams would play in. They kind of look a bit like that. And I feel like even those like older crappy grounds, that even though they were kind of falling apart and they were a bit minging, they had something about them. Do you know what Character, I mean? Well, yeah. everyone loves Griffin Park, don't they? Yeah. yeah. And that's because it's with the new on the corner. Exactly, yeah. It's proper old school, yeah. isn't it? And I don't even think that's got... I suspect... I mean, an element of that will be history. It'll be like, you know like nostalgia and memory and all that sort of stuff and you, you can say like oh well the newer grounds will build that up but I just don't think it's the same I don't think you, you I don't think it's, it's like um, the Vitality Stadium oh, yeah. I imagine that was like an old storied ground and like what how different kind of Bournemouth rise through the leagues would have felt to an outsider looking in onto that and going I bet you it's good down there you know back behind the goal at, mm. what, no we're at the Vitality Stadium mm. So that's enough of that. Obviously, we've got Matt Piper on the show today and uh, we wanted to know why we wanted to speak to him. Ryan, why did we want to speak to him, mate? Yeah, um, Matt Piper's one of those footballers that he sort of burst onto the scene and then you sort of find yourself years later thinking, what ever happened to Matt Piper? And I saw him, I, um, I think it was on Twitter, I came across him, he was talking about releasing a book and he'd appeared on a few of the podcasts that I listened to and his story just really fitted in with what we're trying to achieve here at Man Mark, and it was a complete 360 of a, of a story really full of highs and lows. And I think, don't want to give too much away, but when you listen to a story, that he's had success, more success off the field than he ever did on it, which probably come as a bigger shock to him than anyone else. And I think there's a lot of snippets of helpful information in there. So once we sort of got wind that he was willing to come on the show, it was something that we were we were really interested to do. And... Yeah, it, it was a great story, really, start to finish. Yeah, and Danny, we have themes uh, normally mm-hmm. for our interviews. What kind of themes have we got today? Um, so we've gone with childhood dreams to injury nightmares. Uh, as Ryan kind of alluded to there, Matt was a childhood Leicester City fan, born and bred in the city. And it was, you know, from a young age, he, he dreamed of playing for Leicester and playing at the top level. He, he achieved that quite young, but due to one thing or another... He had some difficulties with injuries and I think he's probably had about 20 people's worth of injuries just on his own. It's quite extraordinary, but yeah, no, he, he, as, as Ryan said there, it was it was a really interesting story. It was a very enjoyable evening. He was he was very good value. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to listening to this one back. Yeah, so let's get to it then. Let's get listening. We'll see you on the other side. So, Matt, can you tell me what is your earliest football memory? My earliest football memory was uh, my mum coaching me in the back garden. Apparently, my old man uh, really wanted a footballer as a son. And um, I came along his middle boy. Um, His older boy played cricket. My, My older brother used to play for Warwickshire. Uh, with the likes of Brian Laura and all that. But my old man was a big football man, so he wanted me to be a footballer desperately, take me out in the back garden and kick the ball to me. And I just kept picking it up, apparently, until I was five or six years old. So he had had enough of me. He'd be inside watching the TV, watching the football on the TV. And my my old dear who used to play football, she came out and um, started trying to coach me and you know, try and get me involved. And that's my earliest memory, really. My mum in the back garden with me, kicking the ball around and me smashing windows and, <laughs> you know, all the next door neighbours kicking off. That that was probably my earliest memory in football. 
Do you remember a point when you were when you were younger when you kind of realised that you were you were better than the other the other kids at football and maybe you had a chance at, at making it? Yeah, well, uh, so I had a teacher at school as well called Mr. Thomas, and other than my mum, no one else really believed in me. I got to about six or seven years old and I started going to this primary school called Woolsey House. And this teacher, he was from Hull, he was from up north, and I'd never heard or seen anyone like him before. And he was big into his football, and we there was football trials on. So I went to the first football trials, and I scored seven in the football trial in, in like a half an hour game. And he was going crazy. I just remember the look on his face. He was going absolutely crazy, saying that he's the, I'm the best player he's ever seen. Um, so that was a really nice feeling. Then he told my mum, then she went home and told my dad. And then from then on, my old man started to get back involved. And then that's when you realise as a young kid, flipping heck, I might be quite good at football because no one else was scoring seven in them kind of games. So, so yeah, probably Mr. Thomas. And in terms of your, your upbringing, Matt, it sounds like you, you, were, you, were, you were close with your, with your mum and dad and, and, and your family was, was a kind of a fairly usual upbringing. Um, no, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just doing a book at the minute. So it's, it's taken me back to, to my childhood. Listen, my mom is unbelievable. Like she was so close to me and my younger brother. My older brother didn't grow up in the house with us. He was, he was from a previous relationship with my dad, but, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, cause me and my dad are close now. But, but back then, he was sort of brought up, you know, old school West Indian on the streets of London. So if he's not got dinner on the table by three, four o'clock when his mum and dad are getting home from school, he's getting beaten. So you had to be really obedient around my dad. And he showed his love, really, um, through protection. He wasn't, very, he wasn't very affectionate. And if you did step out of line, you were getting clapped. So it was it was tough. I mean, I didn't get abused or anything. Don't get me wrong, but it, it was a tough upbringing. And you know, at, at some part, we, me, my mom, and my brother, my mom felt she had to leave my old man, and we went to live in like a, a refuge for a year in Derby, which was awful. I remember that I was seven or eight years old. Didn't see my dad for a year. Um, so no, it wasn't. It wasn't the kind of general upbringing that that you'd think. It was quite difficult, but I always knew that he loved me and my brother, even if he did have some issues with with my mom. So then, in terms with with your with with your football and stuff, when you were obviously you in the refuge when you were sort of seven, eight, and 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 did did football almost feel like a bit of an escape for you from from maybe some difficulties at home and that sort of thing? Yeah, hugely. Um, I went to primary school in Derby and, you know, for a year and I absolutely hated it. But the only thing that I got joy from, and my younger brother, because he's a good footballer as well, was football. We immediately signed up for the for the football team in that in, in Derby. Uh, so, and it can, football, and not just football, sport in general, can can take you away from from the realities that are going on in your life you know if you've got something to focus on whether it is sport or whether it's something else if you've got something to focus on solely it it can 
it can take away from what's going on in your general day-to-day kind of life. So football was huge for me from from that early early outset of seven, eight years old. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely, Matt. It's, it's something that we've spoken about a few times with, with a few different people about how sort of how good a vehicle sport can be in terms of being able to 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 sort of push you into into positive places and 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 even just at a basic level use a distraction from from everyday life, which can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, um, hugely. You you obviously mentioned that your your mum was a, a Leicester fan. Hmm. Coming through the obviously the, the ranks at, at Leicester and, and then making your first team debut. What was that time like for for you and, and for your family? It must have been it must have been really exciting. No, it was. I mean, to be honest, growing growing up at Leicester, so obviously we was away for a year in Derby, but my mum and dad got back together and then my old man was really focused on trying to help me um, become a professional footballer. That's that's all he seemed to live for at that time. And my mum and my brother, because I'd stick him in goal, 11, 12, 13 years old, my, my brother, I felt sorry for him because he was always in goal because I was the one that was going to, you know, make it. <laughs> it feels bad now. I felt I felt bad because when when you talk to him now, because he could have been a player. He was a really good footballer, um, but obviously he had to help his older brother out because I was going to be the professional. I was the one at Leicester City. My old man was taking me and my brother down down the park two three nights a week doing extra coaching, and but around fourteen fifteen at Leicester. I knew I was good, but I had one outstanding attribute, which was pace. Um, but at the time, there was probably three or four lads that I thought were in front of me at Leicester. Um, but as I said, just before we came on, they seemed to get to that age and started liking the party scene, the going out scene, the drinking, the girls. But I was totally focused. I just used to come home every night after school and, and do a bit of extra training, sit watching Pele videos, Maradona videos, and staying really focused at that time. And that was what definitely helped me um, through that sort of 15, 16, 17 stage of my life. And then and then I got in a youth team and Martin O'Neill was first team manager at the time and I, I must have caught his eye. And he used to come and watch our youth team games, apparently watching me before he, he'd drive to Fulbright Street to go to the first team game. So you sort of knew you was a, a good player when the first team manager's watching you at that time. So filled me with confidence and luckily I went on from there. And do you think that you, you said you, you, your dad almost was, you know, you, you expected obedience almost from his upbringing. Do you think that, that kind of instilled the discipline in you that, allowed you to get ahead of maybe other people that were around your age group? I think so. Because in your mind, you, you, you're you trying to please your parents and especially your old man who, who sort of praises obedience and, oh, all my, all my mates are going out tonight, dad drinking, but I, I'm down down the local park playing with you, you know, trying to... And he used to like that. So when you're pleasing your parents in your own mind, you you're feeling happy about that, but at the same time, it wasn't it wasn't just that. It was because I wanted it that badly as well. I, I used to watch Match of the Day and and just dream about being on Match of the Day and being seen at that level, playing in the Premier League. 
So it was a drive within myself, but obviously trying to keep my old man happy as well um, was a huge factor in that. And obviously, whilst you were at Leicester, you scored the last ever goal at, at Filbert Street. Um, what was what was that experience like? That was that was a crazy experience because I was playing in the Premier League on two hundred and seventy-five pound a week for the last 17, 18 games of the season. So I got into the first team under Mickey Adams and Dave Bassett on one of my old youth team contracts. Uh, so all the way through, obviously, me and my old man, because he was sort of my agent at the time as well, was saying that we, we've got to go in and we've got to sort of new contract. And it came to just before the last game of the season, which was against Tottenham. And Dave, we went in for a contract negotiation and Dave Bassett sort of dressed me down a little bit and said, you're not even scored a first team goal yet. You're doing all right and you're playing well, but don't get above your station. And I'm like, above my station, mate. I'm on £275 a week playing in the first team and doing well. So it was kind of a big thing because that was in my mind. And my old man said in that meeting that, listen, he will score against Tottenham at the weekend. He didn't say I'd be the last to score at the weekend, but he, he said that I would score at the weekend. So Dave Bassett said, if he does, we'll offer him a new contract. So so that was in my mind. Um, I've been going Leicester and sitting in the double-decker at Filbert Street since I was eight years old. So, you know, to score that last goal was, it was unbelievable. I, I just wish now, I look back now with a little bit of regret because when I scored it, I should have jumped in the cop. <laughs> that would have been amazing. It was cop end. And Filbert Street had quite famous for, for how loud the cop was. And I should have jumped in and gone absolutely crazy. It was a, a diving header as well, wasn't it? Did you, did you ever score another header again after that? You know, as a winger, it must have been a bit of a rare occasion. No, it was very rare. They, they, there's two times that I've, I've scored headers in my life. That last goal at Filbert Street and in a school's nationwide final. Um, and a bit of a funny story about that because it was up your boys' end, end of the wood. It was up in um, Liverpool. Mm. We played a team up in Liverpool. We got to the national finals and it was the semi-final and the finalists, I think it was 14, 15 at the time, just before you left school, the finalists went and played at um, Wembley. Um, so we came up your end and we got beat in the last minute um by a blockbuster from about 30 yards out and then about five years ago i looked at the team sheet and i'll always remember the kid because he scored their first goal i scored our first goal then he went and scored the second goal so it went 2-1 and then i equalized because i was our best player and he was their best player went 2-2 and then in the lat and, and that was with my head and then in the last minute this kid picks the ball up, takes about three or four on and lashes it in the top corner. All his school going crazy. And it was um, Kevin Nolan. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, Kevin Nolan. That's quality. Yeah. So I've I seen him recently as well because his son plays for Nottingham Forest and my son yeah, plays for Burton. Um, so not long after that goal, Leicester had some some financial issues and, and had a bit of trouble with their administration around that sort of time. I believe there was a story where Mickey Adams had, had, had asked you um, to accept a, a deal somewhere else. Mm. And there might be some trouble with people maybe losing their jobs if you if you didn't go and take that contract. 
What yeah. what was that like then in terms of pressure on on a nineteen year old at that time? Yeah, well, I think it was very difficult and unfair. I mean, Mickey's collared me recently and he said that it wasn't him that said that. Um, but it clearly got said to me. I don't. It, it might have been one of his backroom staff or one of his coaches, if Mickey maintains that it wasn't him. But, you know, I sort of, Sunderland came in for me and I said, no, I don't want to go. Um, but Leicester said, listen, you've got to go up and see what they're offering. So I went and seen Peter Reid, me and my old man. and. Um, they offered me like three, four times more than I had just signed at Leicester City after that Tottenham goal. So, but I, I've always maintained, still in my life now, my my life is not predicated on money. It never has been, not even at that time. So when they offered me three, four times more, Peter Reid was astonished when I said, no, I want to stay at Leicester. Um, so I went back and Mickey Adams absolutely kicked off. And he sort of went down the line, and this is something that he did agree with when I, I spoke to him recently. He sort of went down the line of sort of saying to me that I lacked ambition because Leicester had just been relegated to the championship. And he was saying, you've got a chance to go and display your skills on a Premier League level and you don't want to do it. And I said, listen, it's not about that. It's about being six, seven years old, growing up a Leicester fan from this city and wanting to play for your hometown club just got in the first team and now you're selling me 17 games after I've experienced what I've been dreaming about for my whole life. So he sort of, he sort of took that for a couple of days, but he didn't let me train because he didn't want me to get injured. And then Southampton came in and offered 2.5 million. So I went to see Gordon Strachan and Rupert Lowe at Southampton. I turned them down as well. I came back to Leicester and then I believe it was Mickey. Um, but he said it wasn't him. It might have been one of his backroom staff. They sort of were saying to me, club's on the brink of administration. If you don't go, you know, all these people that you say you love at this football club are going to are gonna lose jobs and the, the club will go into liquidation. So so once he said that, it, I held out for about another two or three days, but then I ended up signing for Sunderland. And in terms of being, you know, 19-year-old kid at that time, what... What was sort of going through your head when you think you feel as though you got the responsibility of people's livelihoods on you? Was that did you did you did you kind of understand the weight of that, or was it just a bit bit of a play? No, no, I, to I, I totally understood the weight of that, and I felt it was unfair that they had, that they had said that to me. But in a roundabout way, it was true, and I understood that as well. Um, so that's what made me make the decision because when I, when I first told Peter Reid no, I was steadfast. I told my old man. My old man wanted me to go. He thought the money was too good to, 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 to stay at Leicester and he wanted me to keep playing in the Premier League. So he wanted me to go and I said, listen, I'm not going. I'm staying. And I was steadfast with that decision until whoever said, whoever said it, I still think it was Mickey, by the way, but... <laughs> <laughs> whoever said that that sort of put the onus on me then and then I felt that that responsibility that guilt whatever you want to call it to 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 go to Sunderland and so Leicester could get that money and those people could keep their jobs so after you um you made the move up to up to Sunderland you were uh, you, you started pretty well didn't you? you 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 got man of the match on you against United was that on your debut was it 
Uh, well, my debut at Sunderland, yeah, at the Stadium of Light. So you you you've obviously started pretty well. Um, mm. partway through that season, you 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 you, you pick up is, is it that season you pick up your first injury? Yeah, and I I've always thought because it's a blow when you look back now, it's a blow, and I've always told people it was my knees because I've had nineteen knee operations to this point now. Thirty eight years old now, and I've had nineteen knee operations. And at Sunderland, I had so many knee operations, but I also had hernias and ankles, and a, a, well, not apparently because I've I, I've recently for this book that I'm doing, I recently read through my medical history, and thirteen games in, I I got a hernia, um, so that's what kept me out there. But no, I did. I I, I started really well. I got man of the match in the the Man United game. We drew one one, um, with them, and they're they're team at that time was sort of littered with talent you know Beckham, Giggs, Keane, Veron, Van Nistelrooy they were they were absolutely unbelievable but we we started that season really well and drew that game 1-1 with Man U um, and after nine games no after 10 games sorry I got called into David Platt's England under 21 squad so things were things were going really well um, and then I got injured and also Peter Reid lost his job and, and Howard Wilkinson took over. So you've, you've picked up that first injury. How long were you, were you out for first time around that? Six months. And, and obviously I assume that was, that was probably your first serious injury as a, as a, as a professional. Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, since I got in the first team at Leicester, I... I was injury free and then I obviously signed for Sunderland and that was the first one then. But I had had two or three, you know, minor knee operations um, back at Leicester City. So it was sort of the sign of the times, but I didn't know that then and neither did Sunderland. I mean, the you, you see players nowadays getting a medical and sometimes it can take two or three days. They're having scans, all sorts, um, looked over by loads of different specialists. I just had a blood test to make sure I wasn't HIV positive. And they didn't scan me. They didn't. They just looked at my medical history and said, "Oh yeah, a couple of knee injuries. That's fine. They're only little cartilage operations, so not a problem." Um, but in hindsight, they probably should have looked into that deeper because I had I had a couple of the worst knees ever known to man. So you're out for six months. You're still at that age. You're only very young and and, and still quite new to. The first team. What was that like? Was that how did you take that? Were you told, look, you're going to be out for six months here, or was it kind of we'll play it by year and 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 that sort of thing? It's hard to try and remember back because now, I mean, Howard Wilkinson had just took over, and I played in Howard's first first game or two just before I got injured, and I didn't like him. I've, I've played under 15 managers, I think, throughout my short career. And Howard Wilkinson goes down as my 15th favourite. Um, so that was in my mind at the time. I, w I was obviously injured, but I was thinking, I don't think this geese is going to last long. And I don't know. It's hard to say because you don't want to say that you, w that you wasn't trying to rush back. But that might have been the case you know, a little bit. And whether that means I was, I don't know. 
I don't want to say that I was feigning injury because I clearly had an operation on a hernia and then it slipped again and then I had to have a second one within that six months. But I wasn't rushing to get back to play under Howard Wilkinson, let's put it that way. And then obviously the next sort of three or four years, you 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 kind of come back from injury and, and then relapse and, and get, get injured again and that sort of thing. How hard was it to sort of keep coming back, you know, to keep motivating yourself to, to you know, do that, do the uh, the rehabilitation and do the work and, and get back to a, to a position where you'd be able to play again? Well, we uh, obviously we're going to get to later in the interview that I had major problems when I left football. Um, and, you know, if I track it back now and think about the story, I think some of my mental struggles started whilst I was still a footballer. Because you imagine, you've been dreaming since you're six years old to be a footballer. You, you get there, you start seeing yourself on match of the day and playing in the Premier League and you, you're loving life. And then all of a sudden, you, you get sold away from the, the team you, was, you, know, you, you dreamt of playing for when you got older. And don't get me wrong, I love Sunderland. I did love Sunderland. The people were great. The fans were unbelievable. The, the football club was a great football club. But then you start getting injured. And then every time you, you're getting yourself fit, I mean, the first time you get yourself back fit and then you start playing again and then you're injured again within three or four games. So then you take another three, four months out and then you come back two, three games injured again. And then all of a sudden that sort of fear sets in of and this is what's in the book because it's it's quite hard to explain but all of a sudden you become a professional injured person yeah so that's what you know best that is your routine do you understand what i mean that that's yeah. where, the, where the routine comes so when you are actually fit it feels alien to you mm. and you know when i first got in the leicester side yes of course i was nervous playing in front of 20 30000 of course you are because you want to do well. And it's natural to be nervous, but my nerves went to a whole different level when I came back from my second, third um, operation. And, and, you know, the Leicester manager now, I've got a lot of time for him. I, I've spoke to him on a, on a couple of occasions recently. I think he's a brilliant manager, Brendan Rodgers. He talks about being able to manage pressure as a routine. So to build consistency, you obviously need routine and and through that comes confidence and what i was doing two or three games injured again out for seven eight months back two games injured out for another three months back one game injured you know all of a sudden you're not building any consistency there. so there's no confidence there so you, your belief in your own ability your mental capacity everything seemed to just seep away from me at Sunderland. So I was literally, if I got fit and I, I got put in the first team squad again after being at Sunderland for two or three years, I was literally petrified going out onto a football pitch because I, I just had no confidence left in myself. Um, was there anyone, did you open up to anyone and tell anyone about that at the time or did you kind of feel like, almost like a sense of, you know, the club's put this much effort into getting me back. I can't now say that, you know, I'm worried about it kind of thing in case they, they think I'm not up for it. 
Yeah, without doubt, there's two things that come into my mind when you ask that question. Number one is exactly what you've just said. Oh, my God, the club are paying me 10 grand a week. I'm one of the highest paid players. I can't turn around now and say I'm struggling mentally. There's no way I was going to say that. Um, and the other thing that comes into it is that old adage that we spoke about just before I come on, that stigma around any kind of you know, mental health, mental weakness, people call it, uh, especially at football clubs. You know, if I opened up and spoke like that, you know, oh my God, this kid ain't got it upstairs. What are we doing? Paying him 10 grand a week. Let's yeah. just ship him off, get rid of him. Um, and it's that stigma that still hangs around mental illness. You feel as a bloke, I can't open up about that. You know, I'll get, maybe you won't get laughed at, but people will look at you in a way of that it's a weakness. And I often wonder with football and probably with all professional sports, if people almost misunderstand and mix up mentality with mental health. So I think footballers talk about having strong mentalities and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's almost like if you've got difficulties with your mental health, you can't have a strong mentality, which I don't think is true at all. Because you can be having some difficulties mm. and still have a strong mentality to, to, you know, get out there and go and perform. And I wonder if that's one of the difficulties that football maybe has in that environment in, in conflating those two things. I think so. That's that's the first time anyone's ever really said it to me like that, but it, it totally makes sense. Um, yeah, without doubt. that That's probably what, what it was, because as soon as that whistle went... I was still, I was in the zone. Even even when I was petrified about going to, to play those games, when I was coming back from injury and the fear of getting injured again, um, the fear of trying to perform when, when all your confidence is gone. Um, so, yeah, but I still, I still felt I had, that's true. Maybe I, maybe I still had a strong mentality, but mentally, and the struggles that I was going through, it it did feel like a weakness. And if I opened up to anyone and said that at that point, I think it would have, I think it would have harmed me. Because for me, Matt, I would imagine that to be able to keep coming back from the injuries that you had to keep, you know, especially as someone who was who was even at that time in your early twenties, to be able to, under you know, as you say, feeling low and having those difficulties and. I'd imagine being injured is quite a lonely place as well because you, you're kind of cut off from the squad and that sort of thing. And to be able to keep coming back shows that your mentality is strong, but it might just be that you're having a difficult time with your mental health. And maybe it's just that you need to, to sort one aspect of it out to help the other, if you see what I mean. Yeah, without that. I mean, at, at that time, my nickname around the club was, was Mr Glass. Remember the the film with um, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah. Uh, Unbreakable, it was called. And Samuel L. Jackson's character, literally, if someone blew on him, he he could, like, break a bone or dislocate his knee. So, and his name in that was Mr. Glass. And my nickname around the training ground became Mr. Glass. And Mick McCarthy, who I think is a great manager, and he was brilliant with me. But literally, he'd come in the injury room and, and be like, bloody hell, Pipes, if you were a horse, you'd be shot by now. 
<laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? He'd have that banter, and it's only banter, but every time you drive away from the training ground, that kind of stuff stays in your head. And it just feeds into that, you know, the mental frailties you've got at the time. And it, it was just, it was just, it was just a difficult time. And there's absolutely no way you can turn around and go, Gaffer, do you mind not taking the piss? Because then it just makes it worse, doesn't it, in that kind of environment? Yeah, it would do. It's like a vicious circle. If you said anything like that, you'd get butchered. you yeah. get absolutely hammered by everyone. Oh, my God, look at Pipes kicking off about that. Grow some, mate. Grow some. That's yeah. what the kind of, that kind of attitude that, that would have come to, to what I'm saying. Because, obviously, I didn't really open up to anyone, but you start to try and... You know, I think everyone does this, not just footballers or, or people in sport. I think I think you test the water, don't you? You sort of you sort of start talking about something along them lines without actually going into it in real detail to see what response you're gonna get. Or or you're talking a third person. You could say, Oh, my mate's playing down at Leicester, he's having a tough time at the minute. He says he says he's got a bit of depression and he's feeling low. You know, if you said that to someone, yeah. I've done that a number of times when I was when I was up there, just to test the water and and the sort of responses that you get back. Tell your mate that he's got one of the best jobs in the world to so stop moaning. You know what I mean? You're like, oh god, <laughs> you know, I can't. Like, do you know what I mean? So yeah, you're thinking, oh, swave, swave, talking about it now. I'm going to get fuel pelters for it. Yeah, exactly. So then, I believe. Um, Eventually, it got to the point where the, one of the surgeons told you that you were it was you were pretty much done, and it kind of recommended that you 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 stop playing. What um what was that like when you when you got told that news? Uh, I've got to be honest. Like people think this is weird when I say this, but you know when when those words come out of his mouth, I was like, thank God for that. Part of me was like that. Obviously, you still want to be a footballer, but when someone actually says, you know, you're better off just quitting, otherwise you ain't going to be able to walk by the time you're 40. And by that point, I just had, you know, some my my boys, my young boys. Well, my first one was on the scene and you think, you know, you want to be in the back garden with them when they're older and playing and being able to, move around and he, he it was a guy called dr richard steadman who was like probably renowned as the best knee surgeon in the world i flew to america to see him and he told me that i had a condition called lax ligaments where my ligaments let my knee capsule move too much when i'm moving at high speed so that's why i was always getting the acl tears the pcl tears the cartilage tears and he said literally there's not an operation that can can help that condition so he said he said a really funny thing to me that stays with me. He said, you have to weigh up. He said, if you can play for another year or sit on the contract that you're on now, even if you're not playing, and earn enough money to be comfortable for the rest of your life, I would tell you to carry on for the next year. If you aren't earning the sort of money that you could earn for a year and be comfortable, I'd quit now. That's sort of what he, how he dropped it to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders because at that time I just didn't enjoy being a footballer anymore. And do you think if if the Satan hadn't made that kind of 
put that scenario to you, do you think you'd have eventually made the decision to 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 quit, or you'd have just kept going and kept going? No, I think I would have kept going. I do. I was in I was in a bad place, but he sort of gave me. He sort of gave me the, you know, the best knee surgeon in the world can't be questioned. Yeah. So, so when I go back to Sunderland and I, and I went into Mick McCarthy and I said, you know, he said that you should really quit. You, you know, I sort of use that information for for my own benefit, if you know what I mean. So if he hadn't have said that, and I went back and said, I want to quit. I would look like a quitter. Yeah. Like, just chuck the towel in. But he sort of gave me that ammunition to be able to go back and say, well, look, the best knee surgeon in the world saying I've got to quit. So I've got to quit. Do you know what I mean? He gave me that ammunition to be able to, to say it and stick by it. Um, and if he hadn't said that, even though in my mind, I probably did want to quit at that time. That's when he said you should quit. It felt like a relief. I was kind of buzzing. When it was almost like somebody had given you the, like they'd taken the decision off you, like the like the weight of that decision off you, almost. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because I, I was just I was just not happy at that time, you know, injured twenty four seven, and when you did get back, you lasted a game or two, and then injured again, and you know, I also had that feeling of earning. You know, a lot of people tell me I'm stupid, especially footballers, because there's a lot of footballers now that would just sit on a contract injured, earning their money, which it, it's in their contract. So if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But I sort of had that feeling of, I feel like a bit of a, a thief in a way, sort of a, one of Sunderland's highest paid players and injured all the time. So you're not, you're not able to play. And, and still taking all that money. It just, it didn't sit right with me. Because um, as I said earlier, I'm not, my. it's not just about money for me. Mm. Um, in the subsequent retirement from the game, what was the, the timeline between sort of falling into the, the addiction and the drink and retirement from the game? Was it a big gap or was it almost straight away? No, I mean, the, the, the kind of, Reckless behaviours probably started early on, but I, I wouldn't say I was addicted to drink or drugs or whatever um, within the first two years. So it was like a it was like a downward spiral. So I would literally. So I never smoked. I did drink. I think I've said before that I didn't drink when I was a footballer. I mean, I did, but I didn't get hammered and yeah. I didn't get steaming. So so I would drink. But literally, as soon as football finished, the first thing I did was go on a snowboarding holiday with my brother and my uh, and a lot of my mates. Um, and obviously drinking on that holiday. Then I went on a, another holiday a couple of months later and, and had my first cigarette ever in life. And within an hour of the first one, smoked 10. So, I mean, looking back now, I clearly had an addictive personality. If I If I enjoyed something, I would just keep doing it. Um, so yeah, it was sort of a downward spiral over 18 months to two years after I finished football, I think. So do you think, although you weren't playing as much because of injuries, the routine of having to do the rehab and still turning up at the training ground 
sort of kept you on the straight and narrow. And when that was removed, it became easier to, to do these things because you weren't waking up having to be at the training ground at 9 a.m. and have that ritual. Yeah, that's that that is the be be all and end all, to be honest. If it, it's like me now. I, I still think I'd be struggling now with with, with with anything that w- that was harmful towards me, drink, drugs, whatever. If if I don't have routine, I think it's my biggest thing. Listen, we can. You, you look at people all the time, and you 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 know. I direct people towards their family if they're going through struggles. Your family, your kids, your you know. But my my biggest thing, and my kids know about this, and my missus knows about it. I have to have a focus and routine. And and sometimes that is that is is family, but most of the time, with 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 me especially, it, it's work. I have to chuck myself into something. I have to give myself a pathway um, to to keep progressing at something. And luckily, I, I have my work this side, and I have my family this side, and I'm always trying to be a better dad, a better husband. Um, the business that I own now, trying to be be the best business owner that I can become and build this academy out. So once I build structure and focus in my life, that's when I'm fine. When there's nothing and you're waking up in the mornings and there's nothing to focus on or drive towards, that's when I struggle. So obviously, when I, when I was younger, I'm trying to become a footballer. When I'm a footballer, I'm trying to be the best footballer I can become. When I'm injured, I'm trying to get back to fitness. And then in the end, you know, looking back in hindsight now, it was probably the worst thing to do when I quit because I left myself with nothing, no focus, anything. Yeah, and it must have been difficult because you were, um, I think, 26 at the time. If you're sort of 35 coming to the end of your career, you've had those few years where you can start to plan and put a plan in place. But when you're growing up trying to become a footballer, you're not envisaging yourself retiring at 26, are you? Even with the injury troubles, you probably had that resilience that a young man has that I'll still make it, I'll still play. Um, So when it's quite sudden and sharp, did you think there was enough help from, and I know you speak fondly of your time at Sunderland, but the PFA or Sunderland, was it you pack your bags and you, you leave straight away and that's it? Or was there ongoing support in place? Uh, no, no, there's no ongoing support. I don't even think there is now. You've got to think, as a footballer, all you are to a football team, even if you're a legend of the football club, I believe you're a commodity. Yeah. So once once you've finished and that, then you're not playing out on the pitch for them anymore or you're not working for them in any capacity, why would they waste time or money trying to trying to support you? And and that is said with with the utmost fondness for Sunderland and, and Leicester City who I played for. It's just the way that it is. You know, you you're no longer a commodity to them. So that you know, they're not gonna pay out for trying to support you in any way. And Sunderland didn't, um, but I, I don't hold a grudge about that. Um, the PFA, they give you like a, a, a sort of severance pay for for finishing as a professional footballer that is supposed to tide you over into a new profession, and they they offer you courses to to retrain for something else, college courses, university courses. 
Um, there's not much in the way, or, or there wasn't when I quit, of you know mental support, um, which I which I think they they could delve deeper into to try and help players out. Um, but no, there, there there was no real support there. But I've got to say, at the time, if there was, would I have utilised it? I, I probably don't think I would have done. I had the rest of my life in front of me. I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought I'm young, I've got money in the bank, I'm free, and I can I can go and do something else. And then, then the problems came when you know you're two years down the line after finishing and you still haven't found a passion for something else so there's no focus there's no pathway and then things start to unravel yeah that's that's really true that and we'll come on to your coaching academy a little bit later on but i imagine that uh, lessons you try and teach to some of the young boys um you, you're coaching at the moment we yeah. had a, a guy in a, i don't know if you ever come across him former footballer called scott davis who played for reading and he went to the sport and trans clinic like yourself, but for a gambling addiction. Yeah. Um, we, we have a lot of really good success stories from the sport and trans um, clinic. Mm. Just before we talk about your experience, do you think it's almost a bit of a shame that it takes a form of football to set up a charity for these things to exist? Do you think the PFA should have things in place already rather than people having to take it on the, themselves? What's great as it is. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because I believe that the PFA, you know, should have something in place. But then again, the PFA is Sporting Chances' biggest backup. Um, so what the PFA like to do, that instead of building it in-house, they, they recognised that Tony Adams had created something, you know, very special and something that really works and, and shows results. So so they've put their money and resources into supporting that. So so they do do it in a way. It's just not it's just not under the PFA banner, but they are one of Sporting Chance's biggest backers. Oh I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So they almost outsource it to somebody else yeah. who started it. Yeah. And in terms of um, when you joined the, the Sport and Chance uh, Clinic, was that just for alcohol or was there other addictions in there as well? Uh, I was addicted to a drug called Valium, uh, which is sort of like a downer drug. I was smoking um, cannabis at the time, um, but drinking was the main reason why I went into Sport and Chance. You know, every day I was drinking at least a litre of whiskey. And most days it was two litres for a period of probably 10 to 11 months. So I was on the Valium, I was smoking the weed, I was, I was, but the, 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 the constant thing was, was the whiskey. Yeah. yeah. And um, when you, I think it was your mother, wasn't it, who drove you to the clinic um, on your first day? What, yeah. Was you receptive? Was you wanting to get help, or was it just more out of loyalty to your family driving you there that you thought I'll give it a shot? Or did you realise that this is what I need to do? No, it sort of it got to that point where there was sort of you know it was <laughs> it was rock bottom really. Um, I couldn't have gone lower than that point. It was a week or two after. Now I, I've. I've still never said, and I, and I won't say it on your um, podcast, but I, 
I still don't believe that I tried to kill myself. But having said that, when you're taking 40, 40 to 50 pills, it was a cocktail of Valium, paracetamol, cocodamol, sleeping tablets. It was They were just all scattered on, on my side like Smarties. I was just putting them in my mouth and, and you know, knocking them back with whiskey. Um, and I went into, I sort of passed out. I, I walked up to a graveyard near me and laid on my granddad's grave. And for the first two, three minutes, I had this real euphoric feeling. And then that quickly turned to the worst stomach pains in the world, heart palpitations, um, shakingly, violently shaking. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the end. This is like game over. And my mum was the one that found me. And then I was in hospital, stomach pumped, um, on all these different kinds of machines. And and then, the, then they made me drink watered-down charcoal, which was crazy. Because that was so, apparently it's when you drink it and it goes into your stomach, it draws the drugs towards it to stop it going out into you, your system and damaging like different organs. Um, so so that was clearly rock bottom and it the reason why i don't say i tried to kill myself because i didn't have that thought in my mind at the time i didn't think i'm going to take all these pills and kill myself but obviously i was in such a low place i've kind of had that feeling of yes do you think then matt looking back a bit hindsight it was almost like a subconscious effort as in if it happens, it happens, but it's not like I'm jumping in front of a train. But at this stage of my life, I'm not really bothered which way it goes almost. Yeah, without doubt. That, that is exactly the feeling that I had. And by this time, I had three sons. I had three sons. I was single because their mom uh, had left. Um, I was living it on my own with the dog. I had no job. My money had more or less ran out. Um, and I just didn't know what was next for me in life and you know that selfish kind of thought of if i do die at least my kids are going to get my house my pension um the monetary things in my life which obviously now i feel so ashamed about because you know none of that matters to me on the way that i bring my kids up it's all about being there that supportive dad that loving dad so I feel ashamed about it now, but that's clearly the place that I was in at that at that point. Yeah, we had um, a guy on a few weeks back. It was actually the first episode of series two, good Aaron Connolly, who's a former footballer up in in Scotland, and he tried to jump in front of uh, a train, and he had um, a two year old son, and he said it was sort of thinking about his son just before we did it that stopped him, and he touched on shame as well. And one thing I said to Danny Nantes. I don't think anybody should be ashamed of that because it was just clearly an imbalance at the time. I think moving forward, the fact that you're, you're still here, Aaron's still here and people can learn from it is, what, is what's important. For anyone listening who, who might be sort of feeling well or at rock bottom, is there any advice or anything you remember thinking at the time that maybe they can take strength from? Um, I know it's a difficult question to put you on the spot, by the way, no, it's it's an important question. Um, I mean, at the time, no, because you don't feel that anything that anyone says to you, um, you don't feel there's a way out. 
I mean, what I can do is talk from the point of view where I am now. And I often say this, and I, I truly mean it when I say it, that, you know, growing up as a kid, I believe what would make me the happiest in life was playing in the Premier League, seeing myself on matches of the day, winning trophies, blah, 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 playing in front of 30, 40,000. And it took all these experiences throughout my life. And now, at this point right now, um, is the happiest point in my life. So when I was a footballer and I was I was trying to get there, I actually got there. And yes, I had the injuries. But even before that, before I had the injuries, you know, when I was playing for Sunderland, Leicester, it, 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 I wasn't as happy then as I am now. Yeah. Do, you, do you understand what I mean? And that, yeah, no, that makes me, sense. Yeah. yeah, and for me, that's that's quite a powerful thing that I want people to understand that that you can you can only live in, in your own reality, and and you can't you can't sort of live outside of it. So living living in the moment is what is is really powerful for me, and and as and has been. Um, throughout my time in rehab and, and moving on to to the sort of life that I've got now. So even though I've been through them experiences, you can always grow. You can always grow and you can always find a different path um, to success, happiness. Um, so that's what I would say because if I did end up taking my life that day when whether I tried to do it or not, you know, I, I came very close. It, if I did now, I know for a fact I would be looking down or, or looking up from wherever I would have gone and and being thinking you 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 made that was a that was a stupid decision to make at the time. But it's hard to say that because at that moment you feel there's nothing. So it's yeah. only in hindsight, and the the, but the advice that that I can share and give is that I seen no way out. I, I didn't, you know, I had my three sons. I, other than the drinking, I was I was healthy. I, you know, I had I still had a bit of money, even though it was running out. You know, there was still options for me. I was young, and to take my life at that point now seems crazy. I think. Yeah. I think there's always something more for for individuals out there. Even if you're at the lowest point, day by day, um, hour by hour, minute by minute, I think what we what we tend to do, especially when we're in them dark, bad places, we sort of we don't live in the moment. You're sort of thinking about the future. Oh, this is only going to get worse, or this is going to continue like this. Or you're thinking about the past. Oh, all the terrible things that I've done. So you're never actually living in the actual moment. And if you if you can do that and make it through the next 10 minutes, the next 15, the next half an hour, um, and then day by day, week by week, gradually, you, you can come through it just like I did. Yeah, that's a very important lesson. I think, Matt, um, a lot of small wins create one big win. Um, yeah. and, and just looking at sort of the life of a footballer, it's so elitist in the sense of very small percentage make it. You were the one, two percent of people who are good enough to play in the Premier League. 
So for you to be as good as you were, you had to be one track minded from the age of eight. You had to say no to things. You had to say yes to certain things. If you remove that one thing you've put your whole life towards, you can understand why people go down that route of feeling a bit lost. And then, as you say now, later on in life, you're not just focusing on one thing. You've got your kids. You've got your probably better social life. You've got your business. All of a sudden, you're not just one track minded. You've got your hands in different pots. And I think that's healthy. Um, But it'd be the same in anything else as well. We often almost criticise footballers for it. But if you had a pianist who maybe lost a hand, I'm sure they would fall into a pit of despair that they can't do what they're good at or what they felt they were born to do. Um, And I think what you're doing in your academy by mixing education with sport is something I want to talk about because it gives young lads an opportunity who fall out the game to fall into something else, which I think is very important. So could you just do a bit of touch on what you're doing with that? Yeah, so it's exactly what you say. It's sort of a, a football academy um but you know heavily weighted towards getting these lads a good education and most of these boys are inner city boys that didn't do very well at school not not many of them passed a single gcse um but we what we try to do is use football as the carrot um to to get them a good education a, a level 3 btech in sport and i say listen just focus on your education, why you're with us. The, the football um, aspect of it is there as well for your enjoyment and to try and progress and get better. And if you get to a level where you can go on a trial or whatever, that's great. But you're not going to get to that level if you're not doing the education because I don't let them train. I'm quite strict in, in that respect. So the And that's why the parents like what we do because – the education is just as important to us as the football. And then the, the third ingredient that we add that I think is probably the ingredient that glues both football and education together and makes it such a powerful place to be is the life skills program that we run. So we invite sort of inspirational people in um, from all walks of life. We've had... Um, pupil referral head teachers in, we've had pupil referral students, we've had prisoners in, former prisoners, we've had footballers, we've had um, captains from from the army, the armed forces, um, nurses, doctors, estate agents that have, that have done really well in their sector. So we sort of invite UFC fighters, uh came what a ufc fighter came in who actually fought in vegas in the proper ufc and he spoke about not so much the fighting side of things but um the discipline that he's he's had to have throughout his life and then controlling aggression because from 15 to like 21 he was an absolute tear away um but then he, he started to learn and hone his skills in the fighting game but it came to him through being able to control that aggression that he's always had in his life. So, you know, that's probably our most powerful aspect of the academy, our life skills program. Um, And it really enhances the education side, but also their football side. Yeah, that that sounds brilliant. What, What age groups do you work with? So school leavers, so from 16 to 19, and they stay with us for two and three, 
two to three years, depending on what um, course they take. We run a BTEC level two and a BTEC level three and a gym and fitness qualification. There's a guy at Tramia called Mike Kinsella who runs a similar thing for Tramia's college. And he, he, he was a footballer, but he went to prison four times in three different countries. So he never really made it to a pro. He played for Berry and Tramia and Liverpool at the youth level. Oh. Um, and he does a similar thing. But they seem, the, the young lads seem to open up quite a lot. But he said indirectly, not simply because we're asking them to, but they just feel comfortable in that environment. Yeah. Do, you, do you get that? Do you get a lot of them who maybe open up to you more than you'd expect? Yeah, yeah, without doubt. I mean, my phone is constantly going off. I mean, we've got 51 students now, and throughout this lockdown, two, three phone calls a day from, from some of the different boys asking advice or I sort of see myself yes I'm the academy owner but I sort of see myself as their older brother that's the sort of that's the sort of um relationship that I try and have with them so uh, I've had an older brother if you've ever had an older brother you can have banter with him you can mess about with him but if he says that's enough that's enough so that's the sort of relationship I have. It's not like a dad to a son where it is authoritarian. It's more we're on a similar level, but when I say you've stepped out of line or now's the time to be quiet while, while we talk and give advice, then so that's the kind of relationship I try and have with them, and it works well. And it's good that the, Mike spoke about the, the atmosphere of, of the place because that's probably... The, and whether it was by luck or design, that's probably the best thing that has been created at the FSD Academy. The, the atmosphere has to be right for these kids to feel comfortable, to open up, to progress at football, to, to work hard in their education and to take the life skills programmes in that we run. 100%. I imagine some of those lads will end up being best friends for life, just meeting each other on the, on the programme. And as I say, the life skills stuff is just invaluable because there's so much we don't learn outside of formal education. So with the fact that some of these boys may have missed out on, on the opportunities other people had, they're probably yeah. gaining other opportunities that a formal education doesn't give you. Uh, the stuff you don't learn about. And you mentioned there estate agents, but even getting a mortgage, sorting out your bills, they, these are things that, especially if you haven't got a strong um, life at home and parents around you then, they're not things you can just pick up anywhere else. Uh, so I think it's very admirable what you're doing. Um, have you had any success stories in joining part-time clubs or anybody from your academy that's doing well football-wise? Yeah, I mean, a story that I tell a lot is in the first six weeks, we had this boy, his name, yeah, I could say his name because his parents know that I talk about him and they, they encourage it because he's been such a success story for us. His name's Lamine. Um, he came over from Africa when he was three and went to live in Holland. And then he moved from Holland when he was five and came to this country. And he was always, uh, from talking to his mum and dad, I'm very close to his mum and dad, he's sort of a, a wild child, messed, messed about at school, wasn't engaging in, in classes. But it's just about what, what you spoke about uh, a minute ago. That is not what engages him. 
you know we're all different and some people are very academic and a maths teacher can stand there and uh, and talk for an hour and a kid will take it in and learn lamine he's just one of those boys that's not like that he learns in different ways he learns through visuals he learns through one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions he learns through being active outside and or or some of the life skills that yeah. that we that we introduce to the boys you know he's very good socially but he's not so good in a classroom environment where he sat down and told to get on with his work so in the first six weeks we sort of everyone that comes into our academy we try and you know have an introduction with we meet their parents we meet the the boys we, they go through a couple of academic tests um but not just for the results of that test we me and the the tutor that work there and and the my other coach that works with us we're looking at you know body language we're looking at how a, an individual acts socially um to try and work these boys out to give us a head start when they do come into the academy and lamine was very much a very polite kind boy very good socially but academically not very good um and he clearly had still a lot to learn um with some of his behaviors and in the first six weeks i got a phone call from uh the john lewis department in leicester town center and I'd only known him six weeks, Lamine, and he'd been arrested for shoplifting. Uh, well, detained um, by the security guards at John Lewis. And I said, so have you rang his mum and dad? And they said, no, he won't give me his mum and dad's number. The only number he'll give me is yours. So wow. you've got to come down and sort this all out because I'm not letting him go until um i've got his name his full name address and his mum and dad come and pick him up so i went down there and i spoke to the guy and i said listen there's no way that i'm not going to not talk to his mum and dad about this and i said what has he what has he tried to steal anyway a bag of harry boats and i was like obviously i thought it was going to be a tv or something and when, <laughs> when it was a bag of harry bows lamine sort of looked at me and smiled and i was like lamine it's not funny this is like, this is serious. So anyway, I spoke to the security guide and luckily he was a Leicester City fan. And he said, listen, I'm going to let him go with you, but I'm going to trust that you're going to do the right thing and share it with his parents. And hopefully this will never happen again. So I said, yeah, no problem, mate. I'm so and Lamine apologized to the guy and, and went to the, the staff in the shop that, that had caught him doing it and apologized to them. And he promised he would never do it again. And we walked out and Lamine high-fived me and he said, I knew you were the right person to call because you got me off it. I said, mate, I've not got you off it. I said, yeah, it went well in the shop, but we're going home now to your parents. No, my mum and dad will beat me. They will beat me. That's why I didn't ring them. And I said, listen, I'll come with you. We'll sit in there and we'll have a chat. And I'll say that you apologised and that you've learned the error of your ways. But... You've got to kick on with your education at the academy. You've got to push forward with your football. And you've got to come to every life skills program that we put on. And I went back, spoke to his mom. Yes, his dad was angry, but he didn't get beaten. So I felt like we'd shown him, from our point of view, a different way to do things. And that you can be honest and you can share with your parents in a certain way. And you've not got away with it, but... You're growing. Show me you're growing. Show your parents you're growing. And 
it can be a positive thing that comes out of it. And now he passed his level two. He's never been done for shoplifting again. He's passed his level two. He's passed the BTEC level three. He has been offered a part-time job at the FSD Academy by me because he's shown such strides. And he's, he's going to go to university. And this is a kid that didn't even get a, um, a GCSE when he left school. So his parents are really happy with him. We're over the moon with him. And he's managed to change his life around. Matt, that's absolutely brilliant story. Um, some people say that scoring a goal, the feeling can't be repeated. But doing things like that, where does that rank for you in terms of actual sort of gratification to what you're doing now and for you and what you've done? Yeah, well, the relationship that I've got with my family now, my kids, my my wife, my stepdaughter, um, my mom, my dad, my brother, you know, that is so powerful for me. But and that is part of the reason why I say this is the most happiest I've ever been in my life. And the other part of the reason is this FSD Academy, because when you can create a, a place that that achieves things like the story I just told you, that's that's the power. And that's what I believe now I was born to do. I wasn't born to be a footballer. I was born to sort of own and run this academy uh, along with my business partner, how we run it. And it gives you it gives you such a great feeling to get up in the morning and drive into work. back to the man marking podcast i'm still here with danny and ryan uh we just listened to matt piper's interview i'm sure you both agree that was a really interesting interview it was really interesting when we did it as well and um, danny you had a, a few things to say about it yeah yeah no just echoing what you said there it was, it was very interesting i think um i think matt he's a lovely chap you, you know and he's, he's he's had a difficult time of it and you know he's come through that and he's now doing his thing and you know it's incredibly impressive he obviously accessed the uh sporting chance the recovery there that for his uh, for his addictions and for his issues uh so you can find them at sportandchanceclinic.com that's for athletes former and current athletes who are going through sort of similar problems that that matt went through if you are not a professional athlete which i am not which the most of us are not um there is a few obviously other options and that you can find them in your sort of local area we know a um a friend of ours runs a, a website called the mind map uh, and you can put your postcode into his search engine on there and it will pull up all of the different types of mental health services that are in your area so that's really useful as a as a tool our um our other friend katie who has appeared on this podcast numerous times if you head to our website at men2army.com, there are also some signposting to different services on there too. In terms of specific places, Parkland Place in North Wales, which is a recovery centre, which I think Chris Kirkland spoke about him going there and how, how positive an experience he had there, and that's in, in Colwyn Bay. And local to us on the Wirral is Wirral Ways to Recovery. Uh, all those details can be found online in terms of phone numbers and contacts and we've been on their website this morning just having a little nose around and they are very easy to access and i'm sure if you need that help they'll be very uh, accessible to you 
That's great. It's really good that there's those local mm. local acts, um, local resources that you can use. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Is the mind map is that mindmap.co.uk. Yeah, mindmap.co.uk. It's it, it's it's twofold really. The website. So Phil does a lot of stuff. Um, the front of the website, he's got lots of sort of interesting interviews with musicians and comedians and some sports people as well about kind of their sort of experiences. And in the back of the website, this sort of search portal, which is absolutely fantastic, and it's a uh, very user friendly, very easy, and it, you literally last your postcode then, and it'll just give you all the services that are within your local area. It's superb, and if you didn't get any of those uh, website addresses, we'll have them on our Twitter as well, we so will. you can you can access them there if you need to. And Ryan, Absolutely. we mentioned before, and you mentioned it, uh, Matt Piper's got a got a book out, and you know we want to know a little bit more about that. We've got a little bit of a surprise for the for the audience as well, haven't we? Yeah, so Matt Piper's book is actually out today if you're listening on day release. It's called Out of the Darkness from Top to Rock Bottom. Matt's kindly signed a copy for us. Uh, we're going to have a competition on our Twitter page, which you can find us at marking underscore man. Uh, if you want to enter that competition, then the details will follow shortly. Excellent. Excellent. Superb. Yeah, little competition for the audience. Yes, I, I must admit... Um, We'll have to get some extra copies of that book because I am very much looking forward to giving it a, a Danny read. Oh, God. So that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Danny has got a little bit of an announcement before we leave, though. Yes, um, I'm pregnant now. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we are. Uh, we, we have decided to take the, the plunge onto the old Patreon uh, for a number of different reasons. Obviously, we do this podcast all in our own spare time. We put a lot of hours and a lot of effort into it, and, and we do genuinely really enjoy doing it. We are at a point where we'd like to be able to grow it and reach more people and, and hopefully help more people as well with the, with the interviews and with the insight. So we're going to be launching that, the details of which will have been on our Twitter yesterday. I'm sure you've already seen it, liked and retweeted that tweet. <laughs> um, yeah, but more, more, more details obviously on our Twitter. We're going to be starting off with a, a nice straightforward one-tier package, which will include some extra content from us. The first of which will be two prediction shows. We're going to start with the Premier League, the most exciting league in the world, and uh, the Championship. No, they're both Farmers Leagues. Oh, pathetic. <laughs> yeah, so they'll be on our Patreon. They'll be straight off the bat, and uh, you can enjoy them. And many other pieces of extra content that we'll be dropping over the coming weeks and months to come. Um, there will be some other exciting stuff that we'll be doing with that as well, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Excellent. It was, wasn't it? That was all right. Yeah, that was all right. Yeah, well done. Yeah, thank you very much. And what's our next episode coming up? It's um, a special one. It's yeah, oh, one. God, I'll tell you what. It is bloody special. <laughs> it is. You've worked hard on it as well. Well, I always have. <laughs> yeah, so the next episode that's on our usual feed is the next episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, which is this week about Justin Fashionu. Uh Difficult to, to, to kind of preamble it. I think a lot of people kind of know a little bit about who Justin Fashion who is, know a little bit about his story. But we got on the uh, on the show uh, Alan Quick, who was a personal friend of Justin's in the in the nineties. So we got on John Holmes, who works for Sky Sports News, who's done a, a few different features and stuff about Justin Fashion who in the past. Um and we also spoke to Ashley Pitter as well, who started or was one of the founding members of Stonewall FC back in the day. Um and his kind of 
path and and story and stuff is quite similar to to some of the things that Justin experienced as well. So it was really interesting to get that that insight. So that'll be in the the usual places as of Friday morning. So where uh, yeah, we look forward to to dropping that one out. Excellent, and I'm hope you're going to join us on Friday morning because that will be a really really good episode. And that's all we have got time for this week. Danny, Ryan, say bye. 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 See you later. We've been man marking. You've been excellent. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Matt, best goal you've seen live? Best goal I've seen live is Dennis Bergkamp, um, 3-3 at Filbert Street, when he, he took it out the sky from a David Platt pass and he, he done Matt Elliott all ends up and then half volleyed it past Casey Keller. Unbelievable goal. Saw that one the other day on that match of the day podcasting. You know, the, the, they're doing like the top tens and stuff. Yeah, I, I actually, I I know this is quick fire, but I I as I said, I grew up a bit of an affiliation with Arsenal. But when he scored that goal, I was in a full Leicester tracksuit in the cop end. I was playing for Leicester at the time. I was sixteen years old, so I was in the youth team, and I stood up and applauded that goal. And a geezer turned around and said, "Sit down before you get filled in." A Leicester fan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when Steve Walsh scored the equaliser and made it 3-3 he came through the crowd this geezer and punched me in the face and knocked me out fucking <laughs> hell really Jesus yeah I tell that story in the programme because I'm trying to find him still <laughs> he's probably avoiding being found yeah. <laughs> the, the last goal at Filbert Street aside what's your most memorable moment in your career Matt? Um, most memorable moment in my career is is probably playing for Sunderland, um, and we beat Arsenal at Highbury three two. We were losing two 0 at half time, and I was a sub, and I came on at half time, and I set up, I set up what uh, the the third goal, uh, and we beat Arsenal, and they had some great players playing. At the time, Armory wasn't playing, but Lumberg, Perez, Colo Torre, they had very good. Arnie was playing, wasn't he? Yeah, was your, dad, was your dad there? Uh, my old man was there, yeah. Wow, that must have been incredible for him. Yeah, it was a bit, it was a brilliant, brilliant night, mate. It was 2 0 down at Arsenal at half time and coming back and winning 3 2. It was just wow. It was under Howard Wilkinson as well, and he actually said some nice things to me after that game, which was very rare. <laughs> What's the funniest thing that ever happened to you on a treatment table? On a treatment table? Oof. Funniest thing that ever happened to me. Well, it's... No, that's not funny. That, like, that's... <laughs> I always say that. Uh, I'll tell you one, one thing that did happen to me, true story as well, for one of my 25 operations, I actually... I had, it was about the third or fourth hernia operation I had. And I had this uh, operation called an inguinal release. So you've got inguinal ligaments that sort of go down towards your, you know, hang around near your pelvic area. And um, an inguinal release is where they cut your ligament in half and it sort of springs out to give you more range. And then they put a gauze because it causes a, causes a hole behind the inguinal ligament. They put a gauze on that so nothing can herniate through the hole um it's quite it's like fringe medicine or it was at the time and i was waiting in the to get any um to have to get an ether ties to go under and um there was this really long 
because they're going to be messing around down near my nether regions, right? <laughs> a really long metal thin ruler on the side. So I was like, hey, I was having a bit of banter. I was like, you better not be measuring nothing when you wear <laughs> And the, the, the surgeon laughed and he said, it, it is for that, but it's not for measuring anything. He said, because when we're messing around down there, normally gentlemen get a, you know, <laughs> and we use that ruler because it's very flexed. We use it to flick it and it just sends it back down. <laughs> the first thing I did when I woke up, I checked to see if I had any numbers on the side of it, just to see if it would flat my one. <laughs> I like how you made sure to tell us that the ruler was really long before you got <laughs> to get an extra one, he was saying. Yeah. It was about it was about nine inches, I think. <laughs> um, Matt, who's the best piper, you or Billy Piper? Oof. Do you know what? You know, sometimes when you're feeling a bit down. Well, I don't do this so much now, but when I was a bit younger, I used to Google piper just to see if I would come up with a Leicester top on or a Sunderland top or whatever. And um, Billy always used to come up before me. <laughs> it, was like, it was like the first two pages of google images and then i'd be like on the third or fourth page so i and i i think i had a little bit of a thing for her as well when i was a bit younger i mean she's a similar age to me um but yeah i've got to go i've got to go with her modest of you matt it's modest <laughs> <laughs> We had um, former Leicester Academy player Guy Branston on the show last week, and it got us thinking, because he's known as a bit of a tough guy. Who's your toughest opponent you've ever played? Well, first of all, Brano is a top, top man. He's like, yeah, he really came across as a top fella. Yeah, he's a good lad, mate. Me and, me and Brano are still good mates now. And um, do you know what? It might be him, you know. I've, you know, my first ever... Uh, so I first played for the youth team when I was, I think it was 14. I think it was 14, nearly 15. And uh, the Leicester youth team, head of the youth team at the time was a guy called David Nish. And he he invited me down to come and play um, because I was doing well. So I sort of jumped two, three age groups and Guy Branston was captain. And my old man turned around because I was panicking. I was nervous. I remember it. And I was panicking. Like, oh, God, where am I going to go in? I'm not because I didn't have a, a, a youth team tracksuit. So I was sort of saying, they're all going to be in youth team tracksuits. And he was like, no, no, you can't go wrong with a shirt and tie. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, goes, I, ain't going I goes, I ain't got a shirt and tie. He goes, use one of mine. So obviously it looked exactly what a 14-year-old in a grown-up man's shirt and tie looked like. <laughs> <laughs> it looked awful. So anyway, he pretends to get on the blower while we're on the way down to the ground because I'm fidgeting around, probably had a tear or two, to be honest, saying, I can't believe you've made me wear a shirt and tie. And he's gone, he's gone, David? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'll tell Matt. And then he's come back off the phone and he said, yeah, everyone's wearing shirt and tie today. So I, then I was all right. Oh, brilliant. I opened the door. There's 20 lads there sitting in trackies and I'm a div sitting in the shirt and tie. <laughs> They're all laughing at me and taking the mic. And Guy Branston stood up and went, everyone shut up. And everyone went quiet. And then he went, come and sit next to me, big man. And since that moment, I, I've always had a lot of time for Guy Branston. He's a, he's a great lad. That's uh, quality. 
And he, he is, I've got to say, probably one of the toughest that I know. Because when I finished football, I went, he asked me to come to a trial at Kettering. I think he was at Kettering. And um, so he said, come in the dressing room before the game, meet the lads. At half time, you can be in there so you can see what we were. It's like a proper first team game. And I went in and um, Guy had had a bit of a shocker in the first half. It was funny. He's the only footballer that I've ever heard say something like this. He was having a shocker in the first half because he is known as a, a tough geezer, not a ball player. So anyway, we're in there at half-time and I'm I'm standing in there just witnessing it all because I was I was going to go and train with them the next week. And it, remember, this is a proper league game and the gaffer come in and they were losing 1-0. And the gaffer come in and he went, he went, everyone sit down. He was going a bit nuts. And Brano stood up. He was captain again. And he said, Gaffer, listen, before you speak, I want to speak. So the Gaffer sat down. <laughs> Brano's, there. Brano's there addressing the squad. And I'm like, oh, my God, he runs the place. And this is what he said. He said, listen, we're losing 1-0 because you lot keep passing me the ball. How many times have got to tell you? All I'm good at is tackling, tackling and heading Stop <laughs> passing me the... Ball. <laughs> football, I know that told his teammates to never pass to him. Mate, brilliant. Matt, have you got a favourite pipe? A favourite pipe? Yeah. Um, As in a smoking just pipe? Just any type of pipe. You know, well, you bend, anything like that. Well, what I would say is, I, I, I do the... Radio now for radio uh, for BBC for the Leicester games, and it's become a bit of a running joke. Not so much out in public, but I don't mind telling you guys this: that the the only vice that I have left in my life now. I and by the way, I do still drink. I, I stopped for two years, but I have the occasional beer now and again. I'm not totally teetotal, so I have a couple of beers every now and again. I don't get steaming, but. Me and the BBC Radio Leicester boys, they understand that I need this pipe in my life. And this is called my smoking pipe. It is one of the old, um, what's it called? I forgot what they're called because I call it a smoking it's pipe. A vape. Oh, a vape. It's a vape. So that's the only little vice and I love it. I, I keep it every day. It hasn't got any nicotine in, but it's just flavoured kind of you know, air, smoke, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, and I can't go anywhere or do anything without this little pipe. So that is my favourite pipe. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I must admit, me and Danny watched um, your Under the Cross this week a few times just because we didn't want to make you repeat stories and wanted to come from a bit of a different angle. And we've spent all week going, come on in, perhaps doing the John Parkin impression all week. Just been stuck in our heads. Go on in then, Obviously, you're a, you're a Leicester lad. Richard mm -hmm. III was, was famously found buried in a car park in Leicester. Yeah. If your body was to be discovered in 600 years underneath an arbitrary location, what would you want it to be and why? Um. Well, I'm one of these. This might be quite a weird answer, but I always say to my missus, I, I'm not bothered. You can... When I die, you could kick me in the canal. <laughs> you, could, you could just flick my body in the canal because I don't believe... This is just a shell. This is a shell. This is not the important bit. The soul is the important bit. So, 
let's say, let's say under a skip. Now someone, <laughs> I, someone just moves a big skip out of the way and Pipes is under there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on up, Pipes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A skip. And just for the fact, I'm not bothered about the shell. It's all about the soul. I like that. Came with a little message, that as well. Yeah. Um, and last but not least, would you rather have an arm wrestle with Akin Fenway or Akin Bayi? Oh. You've played with Akin Bayi, haven't you? Yeah. I still talk to him now. Great lad. You should try and get him on. He's a he's a top lad. He struggled a bit at Leicester and, and sort of... I felt sorry for him because at the time, and even now, I think... You know, some people define his career at that t- at the time that he had at Leicester, and it, if you if you remember back before Leicester, he was unbelievable, and he even did he even did quite well after Leicester. He just really did struggle. I think it was that I think it was the price tag. Um, you know, Leicester's you know most expensive signing ever. I just think, and he didn't score in his first three four games, and he just didn't get that run. And then once people were on his back. He found it hard, but great lad and an absolute beast. Honest to God. When you, and and the crazy thing about him was he didn't even used to do weights. Wow. It was it was amazing. He used to have that like physique and he used to you know, he used to be he looked he looked like the black version of Hulk Hogan, didn't it? He? he was like yeah, that, that famous <laughs> celebration when he took his top off and tensed. Yeah, mate. He was crazy. So I, I don't know Akin Fenway. He's a big lad, but I would probably prefer to arm wrestle Akin Fenway. A Filbert Street hero was needed and upstepped Matt Piper. Now, this was his first goal for the club. The celebrations were ecstatic. And one former striker knew exactly how Piper was feeling. And Mickey Adams was unbeaten since taking over as manager. Come on, Pipes. <laughs>